This is part three of a series we're calling Over. And whether you're with us uh, in person or joining us at church online or you're watching on demand or listening to the podcast, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, We really appreciate it. We're three sessions into this series. It's been great to get your feedback. Uh, I've gotten some email and some messages and some conversations personally just to um, hear from you and to see what God is doing in your life. Uh, through what we're experiencing on Sunday. And so that, uh, thank you for sharing that. That's a really, uh, it's always an encouragement to us. Thank you. We're talking about being overwhelmed <laughs> kind of with life, being overcommitted in our time and energy, being overdrawn financially, financially, being overexposed maybe because of social media or relationships, being overworked in our pace of life. So last time in part two, it was just last week, we called it overdrive. And, and that was really all about running at a pace that is healthy and sustainable in our lives. And we acknowledge that that's something that a lot of us struggle with. Uh, we don't do that very well. Sometimes we just run so hard and so fast that we actually live at a pace that we're not designed to run at. And you can do that for a season. We can all do it for a season. But sometimes we just run every area of our lives like we're in overdrive. And you can Again, you can do it for a season, but if we do it too long and unattended, uh, it catches up with you. So we talked about some signs that you're in overdrive, and then we asked the question, in light of the pace of your life, uh, with all of its busyness and demands and expectations, we asked, do you have a meaningful life, and is this really life the way you want to live it? So we looked at a passage from Psalm 46, where the Lord spoke through David and said, be still and know that I'm God. And we said that the problem with that verse for many of us is that we aren't still. We don't take time to be still. We're not comfortable with stillness. So we talked about the practice of Sabbath and its purpose, that is to bring restoration of our mind, soul, and body and reconnect with God, offer time and place for reconnection with God. And I know the idea of Sabbath is kind of foreign, definitely countercultural. For some of us, it's counterintuitive. Depending on your church experience, it's possible that your church tradition actually reduced the concept of Sabbath to something less than it really is. But so we talked about that. Then I offered an invitation, kind of a challenge, <coughs> to, to start each day of the coming week with 15 minutes of a micro-Sabbath, all right? Just 15 minutes to set the pace for the day and establish a healthier rhythm to connect with God through His Word and through prayer. And I invited you to join me in a five-day reading plan on the Bible app. We chose John Mark Comer's plan called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And several of you did that, and I really appreciate your response to that. And I enjoyed reading your comments and your thoughts throughout the week. And I hope that that uh, message and that exercise last week was helpful, maybe, maybe the start of a new daily practice for some of us. So last week was overdrive. Today, we're talking about relationships, <laughs> And I'm calling this one overestimated. In the next couple of messages, we're going we're to touch on being overwhelmed financially. We're going to talk about social media. Today, I want to focus in on relationships. And I want to start with a question that you've been uh, probably been asking. It's a deep theological question. So if you're new to church, uh, you might think, you know, why are we jumping into the deep end my first Sunday here? I haven't been here very long. This is pretty deep stuff. It's a deep question. It's a kind of thing that if you, if you go to seminary, uh, your whole Old Testament you know, exams hinge on how you answer this question. And so here's the question I want to start with today because you're asking it anyway, and here it is. Why do celebrities become so weird? So that's the question that I know you brought with you this morning. 
weren't you just wondering that? I mean, uh, I'm sure you were wondering that. Why, why are they all just so odd? So uh, it seems like a really bizarre premise, but just roll with me for a second. Have you ever noticed that there seems to be a disproportionate number of celebrities who are, and I'm just going to use the word weird, because I don't know what other, any other word to use. I'm not very good with words. So, I mean, they have really bizarre habits and hang-ups. And maybe, maybe, I don't know your dreams and aspirations, but maybe you hope to be famous one day. Like, have you ever played degrees of separation between you and a celebrity? You ever done that? I don't know how close you've gotten and how, what, how you define celebrity. I did it a couple weeks ago um, kind of, uh, on purpose because uh, something struck me. But those of you who know me know that I'm a fan of The Office, the American version. And I discovered a couple weeks ago that I am no less than six degrees separated from the cast of that show, from people in that cast, like Steve Carell and Rain Wilson and, and John Krasinski and Jenna Fisher, the six degrees. So, I mean, uh, I'm, I know you're just as excited as I was to discover this, and I, I know it'll... In my excitement, though, I had enough wherewithal to, to realize, well, for, I'm like, first of all, this is it. Like, this is the break. This, my life will never be the same because I'm going to be, like, hanging out with Dwight and Jim and, and probably Kevin, and, and I don't want my newfound fame to change me, right? Because, like, and I don't want to get weird in the process, which takes us back to our original question, which is why do celebrities become so weird? I mean, you hear the stories. Can I, I just got to give a couple examples, and you tell me whether you think it's weird. Sometimes you hear it from their own mouths, like, like the celebrity who actually had a pyramid built for his burial. So, do you know, some of you know who I'm talking about. It, like, like, you can't just be buried like a normal person or cremated. You've got to have, you got to be entombed in a pyramid. It's been built. I've seen the pictures. I've done a fair number of funerals, never entombed anyone in a pyramid, but... There's another uh, celebrity, she eats cockroaches on her salad, says they're high in protein. I don't doubt that they're high in protein. I prefer bacon on my salad, and I don't need that much protein in my diet. I don't know about you, but why does the weirdness level seem to be so out of whack in proportion to the rest of society when it comes to celebrities? I mean, there are definitely celebrities who are very high status, you know, household names, millions and millions of dollars, and all kinds of influence, but somehow have remained very grounded. And we're drawn to those people because they're very rare, right? Because there's just this disproportionate number of celebrities. I mean, they weren't weird when they were unknown, but then somewhere along the way, as their celebrity status grew, so did their weirdness level, right? So why is that? Well, I have a theory on this. And this theory, believe it or not, leads us to what I want to talk about today, which is our key relationships. It's just a theory. You can disagree with you want, if you, but there's also a little bit of theology in here, so we can talk about that. But here's what I think. I think celebrities become disproportionately weird <laughs> because as human beings, we were not designed to be worshipped. And that's what we've done with musicians and artists and athletes and actors and actresses and YouTubers and Instagram influencers. We put people on a pedestal and we worship them and people were not designed to be worshipped. And when enough people fall into the trap of worshipping celebrities, even celebrities who are well known for you know, whatever reason, they didn't go pursuing it, but now we know who they are, they kind of under that kind of pressure, that trap of, of worship, they, they kind of collapse under the weight of our worship. So it took me a few minutes to get here, but here's a big idea I want to float today, and I want you to think about this 
in the context of our relationships. You and I inadvertently put pressure on the people we love the most. And I believe God designed us to worship, not to be worshipped. That people, you and me, famous or not famous, family or not, you know, friends or whatever, we're, we're designed to worship, not to be worshipped. In other words, there's something inside you that you just want to kind of channel to something bigger than yourself. And I think what happens is if we don't direct that sense of worship to God, we'll direct it to other things. We might direct it to objects or possessions, or we direct it to people. We direct it to famous people that we don't know, and we direct it to the people in the key relationships in our lives. So in this series, we've talked um, about pace of life and work and being busy all the time. And sometimes people worship their work. You might worship your house, your bank account, your investments, your financial stability. You might worship a career. You might worship a picture of success. You might worship a certain image that you're trying to attain to and maintain. But sometimes we fall into the trap of worshiping people. And I think that lands us in trouble. And this comes into play whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, uh, because I don't think people were designed to be worshiped. And because of that, humans eventually collapse under the weight of being the object of worship. Tim Keller says that since 100 years ago, people used to believe in God a lot more than they believe today, and that the disappearance of God from our lives and culture has caused us to put pressure on one another that we were not designed to bear. So here's the thing. If you're not worshiping God with your life, if we're not worshiping God, here's what I think we do. We are going to take what we would normally attribute to God excuse me, we're going to start attributing it to people. And by doing so, we're putting pressure on one another and on our relationships, and they end up collapsing under the pressure because we're not designed to be worshipped. So think about this in practical, personal terms. Are you putting pressure on your spouse, on your girlfriend, your boyfriend, on your kids, putting pressure on them that they were not designed to bear? Have you elevated them to a place that they were never designed to occupy? So here's my theory, if you can stick with it for just a little bit. I think the instinct to worship shows up in all kinds of surprising places, places you would never expect. But if you start to look at it, we see it everywhere, uh, like you see it on social media, you see it in the news, you see it in the way that we consume our entertainment, the way we view actors and musicians and athletes and all these entertainers uh, who bring pleasure into our lives. You'll see it in the way that we hold up politicians. It's like a cult of personality thing, and it grows way beyond a healthy respect or admiration, and they actually become an object of our worship. See, our desire to worship is hardwired into us. And if you're like, well, I don't really have a desire to worship. I mean, music doesn't really do anything for me. I don't think I'm much of a worshiper. Listen, I would argue then that if that is your argument, then you're probably worshiping yourself. And that's a conversation for another day. This this truth just impacts us all over the place. I'll give you a couple examples. I've uh, officiated a few weddings over the years, 21, best I could count before I retired from doing weddings a couple years ago, just in case you're wondering. But weddings is an area where we see this. uh, I have seen it, especially from behind the scenes. Do you know what I mean when I say Pinterest wedding? How many of you know what Pinterest is? Okay, it's a thing. So do you know what a Pinterest wedding is? Yes, I I think, yeah. 
access to extravagant ideas right at our fingerprint, our fingertips. And it's become such a, like a rite of passage and such a comparison thing, right? Do you know the average wedding in 2019, before the pandemic and everything kind of got out of whack, but in 2019, the average cost of a wedding was $34,000. I'm just going to back up a little bit and say that's ridiculous, okay? Get that off my chest. And I, I've done a bunch of weddings, but I've never officiated a $34,000 wedding. And I know that because it wasn't reflected in the check that I might have gotten or might, they might have overlooked. Uh, but <laughs> I w- if I've retired from weddings, but if officiants get paid a percentage of the $34,000 wedding, I probably will make one exception. So a close runner-up to the extravagant wedding thing is the proposal spectacle. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I didn't realize 30-plus years ago that I should have hired a photographer to accompany me at my proposal. Because that's a thing, apparently. Everything's become like a comparison thing. And we just up the game, right? And we, we keep raising the expectations of each other to such a ridiculous, unattainable level. We put so much pressure on each other. So the question is, are you putting expectations on your relationships, on the people in your relationships, that they were not designed to bear? And you might be thinking, well, I don't know, do I put that kind of pressure on my spouse? And you might be thinking, well, I did a long time ago, but he's been such a huge disappointment to me, I've just stopped doing that. Um, some of, don't look, at, don't look anywhere right now, just look up here. Some of you, uh, it might be that you're single or you're divorced and you're like, well, I don't want to put that pressure on a person, but you've been putting that pressure on the idea of a relationship or on the idea of marriage. Um, you know, like when I get the right person, when I meet the right person, uh, you know, he'll fill that void in my life. He'll make me complete. She'll make me happy. He'll make me happy. We think things like that. And sometimes we actually say things like that. But are you actually placing expectations on someone that they are simply not designed to be able to bear? <clears throat> so here's where we really see it, right? Because we, we do this with our kids. Think about the expectations we place on our kids. <clears throat> Whether we're talking about the way that we celebrate normal developmental milestones or the prowess on whatever field of play, the basketball court, the soccer field, the hockey rink, whatever, their report card, what college they got into, whatever the thing is, could it be that we place as parents, we place pressure on our kids that they were not designed to bear? So are you putting pressure on your kids? Are you putting pressure on your spouse? Are you putting pressure on the people you love that weren't designed to bear that kind of pressure? See, you and I are made to worship, but I think this is, this is actually what we're looking for. We're actually looking for a savior. And the guy you're married to, he's just a man. The woman you're married to is just a woman. The little girl that lives in your home is just a little kid. The person you're dating, just a human with limitations, they're never going to make you happy because that's not their responsibility and that's not where happiness even comes from. So what I'm talking about are expectations and specifically unrealistic expectations. And these unrealistic expectations, I mean, how, how in the world are the people in our lives ever going to live up to them? So are we putting pressure on people that they are not designed to bear? <clears throat> this isn't just a problem that's unique to our time and culture. 
It's something that has happened and been happening for thousands of years as long as there have been people. People have been diverting their attention away from God. Even people who believe in God, we get distracted and start to worship things other than God, start to worship other people. And God knew that would be our tendency. So when he, when he gathered the Israelites uh, in the wilderness, when they were making their way out of Egypt towards Canaan, and he gave the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment he gave deals with this issue that we're talking about today. And I know you have to be really careful when you're pulling verses in the, in the law out of, out of the law into current day in the church and Christianity and all that. Because I understand that this is the Jewish, the Old Testament is the Jewish scripture. That's the law and Jesus came as, to fulfill the law. But there are plenty, there's plenty of principle here for us to draw from. So that's what we're doing today. Because the law reveals who we are in relation to God. I want to read this verse from Exodus chapter 20. This is where Moses, he come down off the mountain, he's delivering the commandments, the big ones, the big 10, okay? Verse one, God gave the people all these instructions. He said, I'm the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. So the Israelites have been in slavery for centuries, for over 400 years. They were an oppressed people. And God just, I don't, sure, I don't understand the timing, what prompted him or what, but he's like, I'm going to set you free from the most powerful nation on the earth, the nation of Egypt, and you're powerless to do it, but I'm going to do it. And through a, through a series of spectacular miracles, God delivered the people out of Egypt. So now they're on the other side, and he reminds them of their story, where they've come from. And he says, you must not have any other God but me. And we would think that, like we would think that in light of what God had done for them, and not in ancient past, but like in fairly recent history, in light of what God had done for them, that this commandment wouldn't be necessary, right? He's, of course he's going to be their God. They'll never put another God before him. God, but here's the thing. God understands human behavior. He knows like, hey, Israel, pay attention because you may not think so right now, but you're going to put other gods in my place. This is human behavior. John Calvin lived and wrote over 500 years ago, and yet he manages to come up in a lot of our conversations a couple times in the last two days for me. And he said, the human mind is a factory for idols. So it doesn't matter what culture you live in. Exodus 20 was written about 3,000 years ago. John Calvin wrote over 500 years ago. And, and, and he says, we just manufacture these false gods over and over and over again. And here's the thing, God knew this about us. And he said, look, you must not have any other God before me. Why would he say that? because he knew that we would pursue other gods and that we'd worship other gods instead of him. And in Israel's story, it's not a big gap of time between when God did something spectacular and when their hearts started to stray. So he says, verse 4, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. He goes on, he talks about the consequences of our disobedience, verse 5. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. So here's the deal. God forgives our sin, but sometimes we still have to live with the natural consequences of our sin. He doesn't often remove the consequences. And I don't think in this verse God's even saying that he's punishing uh, the children for the sins of their parents. That's not what he's saying. But there are long-lasting consequences, natural consequences to sin. And the impact of certain sins is felt over the long term. It's just the way it happens. It's just natural consequence. For example, some of you grew up in homes where, where one or both of your parents were addicts, alcoholics, drug addicts. Some of you grew up in abusive situations. 
Maybe your home wasn't abusive, but you know that your grandfather was abusive towards your mom when she was a kid. So did that abuse, that abuse, the sin of your grandfather, impact your mother? Absolutely it did. So then did that impact you? Of course it does. And maybe your father or your grandfather was abusive toward your mom, although never toward you. Did that impact your mom? Yeah. Did that impact your childhood experience? Yeah. Did that impact your ability to relate to God as a loving heavenly father? Most likely. But it doesn't mean all this is irreversible. It just means it's true. So parents, if we let our hearts stray from worshiping God first and God most and God alone, it's going to have an impact on our kids, on our grandkids, on future generations. Because listen, our character flaws are going to have an impact on future generations. So God is saying, just understand the damage that you do in light of natural consequences. Oh, but the converse is also true. And so he finishes this passage by saying this in verse 6. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So God is gracious, right? And when we get it right, (laughs) that has ramifications too. There are natural implications to when we get it right. And that's the upside. So God had to warn his people like thousands of years ago, hey, you're going to fall into this pattern, so be careful. And this was still a temptation for God's people by the time we run into the New Testament. And Jesus begins his ministry being tempted in the wilderness. And he's tempted by Satan. And I know this can be a tricky subject, the idea of Jesus being tempted, even the idea of a personification of evil. Uh, But hang with me through this. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by a tempter, by an accuser. This is before he does anything, before he teaches anything, before he heals anybody. He's prepared for like 30 years so far, essentially his whole life. And now before he starts into the thing that God has called him to do, he is tempted. And the gospel writer says it this way, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and he became very hungry. You think? I don't know how long it takes for you to get hungry. For me, it's slightly less than 40 days and 40 nights, more like 40 minutes. After 40 days and 40 nights, I think my resistance is going to be down. I'll eat things I'd never thought about eating, I'm sure. I mean, I'm definitely craving a burger at that point. Who am I kidding? I crave a burger after like four hours. Jesus was tempted Because Satan knew, the accuser knew, that there's a lot riding on this. See, he knew that Jesus really was the Son of God. He knew that to be true. But here he is, Son of God, also fully human. And if he's fully human, then in Satan's mind, that meant maybe in the same way that he could be obedient, perhaps he could be disobedient. And there's a whole theological thing that goes along with that. But this is what Satan's thinking. That if I can get the Son of God to be disobedient, then the plan is off. Verse 8, says, next the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. You know, as broken as this world is, we'd still like to have a little more of it, wouldn't we? Like, I'd like a little more power, a little more influence, a little more money, better relationships, the perfect family, perfect marriage. We'd all love to have all of that. The devil showed him everything, and then he said, verse 9, I'll give it all to you if you'll kneel down and worship me. Just kneel down to me. Just kneel to me. It's all, if you do it, I'll give it all to you. Because that's the promise, right? That's always the promise. 
Because if I just work a little bit harder, I'll have it all. If I just get the success I think I want, I'll have it all. If I can just find the right person, if I can find her, if I can find him, if my kids turn out the way I hope they turn out, then I'm going to have it all because that's what I want. And we may not kneel and worship Satan, right? But we might kneel down and worship the dream, worship the expectations, worship the ideal. Jesus realized that this this temptation was about taking his focus off of God, off of the Father. And you realize, this is actually taking me to the same place that God's redemption story is ultimately going to take me, but it's kind of like a shortcut. And it's like, if it's a shortcut, it's not from God. Verse 10, he says, get out of here, Satan. The scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. See, people were designed to worship. You were. You have that instinct, whether you're a Christian or not. But we weren't designed to be worshipped. So my question is, are you putting expectations on your relationships that they were not designed to bear? Are you putting pressure on the people that you care about the most that they were not designed to bear? Are you putting the pressure of unrealistic expectations on the people in your life? Because when we do that, when we place expectations on people that are unrealistic and unachievable, when we place expectations on people that really aren't their responsibility in the first place, like the expectation that they will make you happy, that they will make you proud, that they will serve you, that they'll make you look good, that they will feed your sense of identity and your sense of significance, when you do that, you are worshiping something that really shouldn't be worshiped. I mean, think about it. Have you ever come to the place where you're like, well, if I could just get him doing what he should be doing, if I could just get her to stop doing that and start doing this, if my kids would just do this and they turn out that way, if they do well at school and they do this and don't do that, when we do this, we are using the people in our lives as a means to an end. And when you strip it all down, it's as a way to get what we want, as a way of satisfying something in ourselves. And so to start with, we've placed our expectations in a place of honor in a place of worship that only God should occupy. And when you got everybody doing what you expect them to do, you actually put them in a place of worship as well. So when you place your hopes in people, it messes them up in the same way that celebrities get weird. Parents, you can make your kids weird. And you're like, no, my kids are already weird. I don't need to do anything to make them weird. Maybe weird isn't the best word. Because what we're actually talking about is health and unhealth. Tim Elmore uh, writes a lot about parenting, and he writes about the idea that that parenting styles and approaches to parenting uh, go through seasons, right? Typically kind of in a generational cycle. So some of you who are older, I'm just kind of looking right, I'm just going to look at the camera. Okay, so some of you who are, that might be awkward for those of you watching, I'm sorry. But those of you who are older, <laughs> we, have, we have several generations in the room today, or in the building at least. You might have had very austere, strict parents. Kind of, I'm curious to know, but then I have to identify who the older people are. So then we had, after that, we had the loose parenting of the 60s and 70s which eventually gave way to the doting parents, parents who said, you know what, I'm not going to make the mistakes my parents and my grandparents made. I'm going to focus on my kids. I'm going to make the kids the center of my home. I'm going to make them the center of my attention. And Tim Elmore argues that that approach to parenting is ruining our kids. 
a sociologist and psychologist are studying a generation moving into adulthood now that is kind of messed up. Messed up about their place in this world because their parents have adored them so much and sunk so much of their time and energy and attention into their kids. Listen, kids aren't designed to bear the weight of what parents tend to place on them. And so Elmore says, the generation that's being produced, there are exceptions, of course, but this is the trend. He says, we're watching kids with high arrogance and low self-esteem. Because they've been told from the very beginning that they're, they're awesome, you're great, you can do no wrong, you can do anything you set your mind to. If you can dream it, you can do it. According to a recent study, 77% of all kids think they're above average. Don't let that one just get away from you. Because if you understand fairly simple math, you understand that 77% cannot be above average. It doesn't work. Not mathematically possible. So why can't we just be honest, okay, parents? Why can't we just be honest that maybe we've placed expectations on our children that they're not able to bear? How about the idea of the perfect marriage? And Christians are not exempt from this. I think it's possible that in the church in North America today, and I know this is a controversial statement, and I said it at nine, I'm going to say it again, and I may never get to say another word, but I don't know. I think it's possible in the church in North America that we've made family a God. Because some of you, I'm pretty sure it's most of us, in this church, don't come from families that look like traditional families. And if that's true, and you feel like because of the ideal we've put out that you don't fit in, because maybe you're not on your first marriage, or you're not married, or you don't feel like, you just don't fit the image that the church has put forward, worst case scenario, you would, you would decide, well, that church isn't for me, but even beyond that, you might decide Jesus isn't for me. So I think that's what happens when churches and Christian leaders elevate a picture of the ideal family to almost godlike status, and when we propagate family values as we define family values, then like this is what happens. Listen, you want to read about family as family really is? Read the Bible. Man alive, it's, we would think that they are so dysfunctional. Yeah, they're just like people. You hardly find the functional family, fully functional family in Scripture. They're all messed up just like us. And God comes along and He's like, hey, guess what? You're not each other's Savior. I am. I'm your Savior. So people were designed to worship God, not to be worshipped. That means your children were designed to worship, not be worshipped. So parents, let's do this. Let's just point our kids to Jesus rather than some idealized, mythical family picture, ideal thing. You'll never go wrong pointing your kids to Jesus. And when they learn to see themselves as Jesus sees them, they will be far healthier. They'll have a far more realistic sense of self. They'll understand how, how much worth they actually carry and who they are created to be. Though if you're dating, your girlfriend was designed to worship, not to be worshipped. So don't worship her. Serve her, respect her, love her. Your boyfriend was designed to worship, not to be worshipped. 
Your husband was designed to worship, not to be worshipped. Your wife was designed to worship, not be worshipped. So what do we do with this? Well, I think we start with um, worshipping God. Not some unrealistic, unattainable expectations. Worship God, not some mystical or mythical outcome. Take the pressure off your kids. Direct their attention to Jesus. Take the pressure off your spouse. Stop expecting behavior worthy of your worship and serve them, respect them, love them anyway. And I know this might be a little bit confusing and a little counterintuitive. It might even sound contradictory to some things that we've even said from this podium. Because we've been taught, you know, love your husband, love your wife more than anything, love your kids the most. But here's the thing. Can I just strip all that away? Let's get down to the essence. Loving Jesus first and loving Jesus most enables you to love your husband more, to love your wife more, to love your kids more, to love the people in your inner circle more. So what this means for us, and this is it, and I'm done. Let's go from here and let's love God first and love God most. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult, uh, kind of, might have been out of left field kind of topic today. It's a, I find it to be a very challenging truth. I pray that you'd help us to be honest with ourselves here and to see where we've put pressure on the people in our lives, the people that we love and care about the most, where we've put unrealistic and unattainable expectations on them, whether they've ever been communicated or not. And to acknowledge that in doing so, there's a sense in which we've made them an object of our worship. And the bottom line is that it's so unfair because we were not created to be worshipped. We're created to worship, ultimately to worship you. So in this moment, speak into our brokenness. Speak into the hurt that this topic might bring to the surface. Speak into all that undue pressure and speak into the reality of our lives. May we all just turn our eyes toward you, to focus on you, to love you first and love you most. In doing so, that'll help us treat each other the way you designed us to treat each other. And in doing that, that brings honor and glory to you. And in doing that, you'll be worshipped the way you ought to be worshipped. Thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen.